What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Talking Dreads is a band that plays reggae and ska renditions of Talking Heads songs. It sounds like a gimmick, but it is a surprisingly authentic project by Jamaican-born Mystic Bowie, who mixes his sincere love for Talking Heads with reggae music. Mystic Bowie, our guest today, is a friend of mine who took me and my wife to Jamaica in 2019 to experience the Maroon Festival, which I will never forget. We talk about the Maroon Festival today, and we also talk about his music and his many wild experiences meeting famous musicians as a child at Chris Blackwell's famous Compass Point Studios in the Bahamas. So Mystic Bowie invited you to Jamaica. He did, yeah. And what was interesting is I was interviewing him for Salon because I really liked his band and I really liked the stories I knew of, but he was telling me that he was a Maroon and I had I happened to be reading a little bit about Maroons. We just got into a deep conversation about that because I was aware of it. And he told me about the Maroon Festival and I was just said, I would love to go. And he invited me. I mean, sometimes people invite you and you kind of, you just assume they're being nice, but I took it seriously and I worked it out. So Amy and I went. When you told me that you were going to go to Jamaica, I didn't believe you. <laughs> and I didn't just go to Jamaica. I went to like like a small town in the mountains where tourists don't usually go, or at least U.S. tourists don't usually go. Yeah, I remember seeing the pictures coming back from your trip and being like really blown away by how deep the level of your experience looked. Yeah. It didn't look like a tourist trip. No, it wasn't. And it was like, in a way, it was similar to what it feels like to tour with the band in that we didn't have like tons of sleep we were <laughs> kind of in a frantic mode the whole time so it was like an amazing adventure but also kind of exhausting as well i would definitely love to do something like that one day 
it was one of the top experiences of my life for sure. See, the, and the thing is like Mystic Bowie, he's also a really interesting person with really interesting music. And it was really fascinating to get to see him in this environment because I knew him as this reggae musician that lived in Connecticut. But he's also like part of this community in Jamaica. You know, everybody there knows him. Everyone there says hi to him and, and respects him. So it was getting to see like this whole other side of him as well. That's amazing. He really comes off as just such a charismatic, great person. You're in a band called Talking Dreads, or is it Mystic Bowie and the Talking Dreads? Mystic Bowie's Talking Dreads. Mystic Bowie's apostrophe S, Talking Dreads. I love your band because it sounds like a gimmick, but it is totally not a gimmick. You do reggae and ska versions of Talking Head songs. Correct. Basically, what I wanted to do, and to make it clear, I wanted not to be a Talking Heads cover band. You know, I wanted to legitimize it. So um, obviously, me being a frontman for the Tom Tom Club for most of my life, I, um, you know, I was on the road with, with, with Tom Tom Club and saw the offers come in for a reunion for Talking Heads and I realized it was never going to happen. So... That inspired me, who is in love with Talking Heads music and in love with, the, with all the members of the band. Why not just bring the music to the fans who need it, but in my genre? I, like I said, I didn't want to be a cover band. So I had spoken to the, Mike Keisha, the late Mike Keisha. Um, I, I needed his, uh, his input and how to go about it in the first place. And I approached Mike after I got the blessing from uh, the original members of Talking Heads, uh, Chris France and Tina Weymouth to go definitely go ahead and do it. Uh, they love the idea. Um, I, Mike Keisha was, uh, he was the manager for Toots and the Matels, Yellow Man, along with a lot of other acts out of Jamaica, Yami Bolo, you name it. He was a manager for a lot of them, he passed away um unfortunately but um when i i told him that i needed to legitimize what i'm doing with these songs i need uh not to be the cover band i needed to do my version basically i wanted was to maintain uh the respect for their melody and their style their feel but at the same time i need to also respect where i'm coming from which is Jamaica with the real ska and reggae. So uh, Mike had made some calls for me. Um, well, he was in Jamaica at the time with Toots. So he, he called some musicians up for me and we decided we're gonna do the record in Jamaica. And that's the only way and the best way to legitimize what I'm doing with this. Um, so he, he called up, uh, Barry O'Hare, which is no longer around with us either. He passed away. And Barry O'Hare was the, the recording engineer. Um, the Barry O'Hare studio in Ocherius. That's the old Jack Ruby studios. Is now Barry O'Hare studios. And so that's where we, he set up the recording. And then he called Lincoln Thomas, was, which was, uh, he is the, one of the guitar players for Freddie McGregor's band. He called Lincoln. And then Lincoln called... Bowie, the keyboard player from Stephen Marley's band. He also called 
Trevor McKenzie from uh, Barry's Hammond's band. <laughs> and just so, you know, just so you know, Rupert McKenzie, who is the bass player for Talking Dreads, his brother is Trevor McKenzie, the bass player for Barry's Hammond, who actually played on the record, Talking, Talking Dreads record. And then we uh, called Dalton also from Freddie McGregor's band and the backup singers from Freddie's band. And we walked into Barry's studio and said, you know what? Let's get this show on the road. And, you know, that's who, the reason why it sounds the way it sounds and feel the way it feels. So you have the real ska, the real reggae by real ska and real reggae musicians that were born and bred in it. But at the same time, I, I work really hard to maintain the respect for the feel, the melody and, you know, and the words of talking, talking heads. You, you're talking dreads really emphasizes to me what a um, great lyricist that David Byrne is because you get a different sense almost like when, when the songs are played by you and sung by you because the lyrics have like, are, they can mean different things. So the way you sing them and it's earnest sound like it kind of gives you a different sense of what the songs might mean than when he sings them. And I think that's really cool. When you approach the songs, how do you approach the lyrics? Do you think about what they mean to you and stuff like that? Yes, I wanted, um, in the beginning, I thought about um, speaking to David to, for him to interpret, uh, give it the definition of his, this, you know, the storyline and everything, for, you know, for the, for the lyrics for each song. But then I decided against it. Uh, you know, the way my, my grandfather would say something to me back in the day, um, you know, he'd say, Bowie, you know, uh, a good song is like the Bible. He said, a good story is like the Bible. And I asked what he meant by that. And he said, well, every single person can interpret it in their own way. And that stayed with me. It stood with me. It stuck with me. And that's how I look at uh, uh, Talking Heads lyrics. They're very unique. They're very unique, very powerful. But I wanted to make it, I wanted to interpret it my way and put it across my music in the way that I interpreted it. So I did not go to him for that um, interpretation of what he really meant when he was writing these songs. My favorite version that you do is a Psycho Killer because it's kind of kind of this bouncy ska song. It feels good, It's but it's such an interesting, the lyrics are weird and dark and stuff. What was your thoughts behind interpreting that song? The thing is this, uh, the way I interpret Psycho Killer, it's not somebody running around psycho killing somebody. For me, I interpret it more like, a, you, you know, like someone who is more like a plague to you, who is very always negative, always kill whatever, try to kill whatever idea you, you throw out instead of thinking about it, at least give it a chance to resonate and then, you know, give it some thought, but they'll try to kill that idea, that every single idea that you throw out. That's how I interpret Psycho Killer. And then my approach to it, I wanted to make it danceable, but aggressive at the same time because of my interpretation of it. And that's the reason why that song I put that in a, in a, in a ska feel, very upbeat. I just want to take a quick step back because you, you mentioned it and I just want people to fully understand. 
give us a real brief summary of like your timeline with Tom Tom Club because you weren't in the band at the very beginning, but you did eventually join the band and you were in the band for a great period of time. Yes. Uh, what happened is, as a child, I would perform. I I, I grew up in a tribal village, as you know. Uh, the, the, you know, I was brought up in the Maroon tribes. So as a child, I was I was not a reggae singer. I was I would sing our Jamaica traditional music, Maroon traditional um, folk music, which is Mento, Mento, and my my tribal music is Mayal. So those are the kind of music that I grew up singing. And that's also one of the reasons why I would I would all I would be on most shows uh, as opening act as a te- as a child performing. The reason why because everybody else was singing reggae, I was the only one singing these traditional uh, traditional genre mento mayal and you know and then I branch out into calypso and soca. So what happened is they would bring me to the Bahamas to perform again. You know, as the only one not doing reggae, I would be brought to the Bahamas to perform at Compass Point. Then I would, I would um, be hanging out, uh, sneak out at night. The, the lady who was uh, assigned to take care of me, <laughs> per se, um, as soon as she fell asleep, I would just sneak out through the window because I found out that there was a recording studio across the street. <laughs> That was the biggest mistake they could do to a curious kid is let them know there's a recording studio around. So <laughs> I would sneak out every single night and go hang out by the studio, uh, which um, that's where I met like so many people. And at the time, I had no clue who they were and I had no interest in knowing who they were because as a 14 year old, you know, almost 15, I have no interest. All I want to know is like, there's a lot of cool looking equipment, cool looking music gear, and I'm going to get to go peek on them and see what people are doing with them. So Compass Point Studios is a, is a famous studio that is owned by Chris Blackwell. Correct. And so all of these non-Jamaican musicians from the U.S. and the U.K. and stuff, they would go down there. It was like the hip place to record for a while. And this is the time period you're talking about. It was also the hip place just to hang out and party. <laughs> yeah and that's the reason why they didn't want me to hang out there because there was too much going on for a child to see who were some of the artists that were coming through there at that time oh my gosh all right let me see, back up a little bit some of the people that i met there grace jones slide on bar rabbi shakespeare uh freddie mcgregor chris france tina weymouth of talking heads they still own actually they, they still own the condominium right behind where the studio was Chris Antina still does. I met uh, Emerson, uh, Keith Emerson uh, from Emerson Lake and Palmer. Oh my gosh. Um, I met somebody very important. I have this amazing story. I met someone and I had no clue who he was until years later. Years later, I was doing a, a performing for the Okanagan International Film Festival in British Columbia. And they told me that, um, they have a, a band already, you know, whose music also used in the film and they're gonna be, that's the band I'm gonna be working with. So I went up there and I, that's when I ran into uh, Keith, Keith Emerson. And right away he remembers me, he's, you know, he's like, whoa, this little pain in the ass is still alive. <laughs> <laughs> so 
then when he started to introduce me, that's when he's, he, I, I remember what happened because he had a, a motorcycle that he brought from, from the UK and he'll keep it in the Bahamas. So whenever he come down there, he have it to ride around the island. What happened is he would start to give me a ride on the back of that motorcycle whenever I asked him, which was really nice of him instead of just chase me away, you know? And one night I wanted a ride on the back of the motorcycle and there was a guy basically drunk out of his mind and on the back of the motorcycle, he needed a ride to go where he was staying, which was just across the street. He could have easily walk, but he wanted to be on the motorcycle. And as soon as Keith Emerson took off on the motorcycle, I grabbed the back of this person's shirt and yanked him off the bike. And I bolted up to the room where I was staying. <laughs> <laughs> so years later, when I was performing with Keith Emerson in British Columbia, and he's in introducing me on stage, that's when he said, and just so you know, that guy that you pull off the back of my bike, that was Ringo Starr. <laughs> <laughs> And I went in shock because at this age, now I know who Ringo Starr is. Well, I think the funniest part of that story is that Ringo Starr probably is not used to people not knowing who he is. So it's a rare person at that point in his life that doesn't react to him as a, as a huge celebrity. You're just some kid, no idea that he's important and you just treat him like a regular person. Yep. I treated him like him very regular person <laughs> <laughs> like a regular drunk person exactly exactly so i met you know keith emerson along with a lot of the desmond decker was there also uh who was the king of scar as far as i'm concerned 100 and uh you know there was a lot of people it's hard to recall there was so many people I, and then is years later um it was in 1991 i came up moved up to um uh, New York and I didn't like it there you know the city life so I moved to Connecticut which was just right over the border basically I moved to western Connecticut and uh, a friend of mine um, Jimmy Mack had a band in uh, New York City called Lugaroo he's from um, Lafayette Louisiana so he had his Zydeco band in Manhattan uh, where he was living at the time so he, he, there was a venue called Tramps and he was doing this Mardi Gras festival at Tramps in 1992 and he I was going to be the only reggae act that slated to be on that event um, so at the time I'm living in western Connecticut and he I told him that I don't I don't have a band that I'm currently working with he said don't worry about it it's even better anyway not having a band because it's less musicians and he already have a backing band that like a band that will be backing me and he told me that that band lived in, um, in Connecticut. He gave me their address and their phone number and gave me the date when to show up. I did not call, uh, you know, the date when I'm supposed to show up, I didn't call. I literally just show up. And when I walked in, the just so happened the house was literally 10 minutes from where I live in Connecticut. When I walked into the house, Who's, who it was? It was the Tom Tom Club. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be the band that's going to back me. So I'm like, wait, I know you guys from Bahamas. And they start, everybody just started <laughs> laughing. 
everybody started laughing. I'm like, here we go again. They come back in full circle to, to haunt me. <laughs> so that's how I end up uh, reunited with the Tom Tom Club and members. And um, at the time, in, in the, during that period in 1992, 1993, uh, Charles Pettigrew from the duo Charles and Eddie was fronting the band. Um, Charles uh, passed away, unfortunately, you know, sadly passed away from cancer. And Tina and Chris approached me and said, you know, Mystic, we love your energy. We love you as a person. We would love for you to be the front man and join us to be a part of the Tom Tom Club. And needless to say, the answer was definitely yes. Aaron, did you listen to Tom Tom Club in high school? Yes, I did. Me too. I didn't listen to the Talking Heads, but I listened to Tom Tom Club. <laughs> That's funny. It won also. I mean, I was the sort of kid who listened to a lot of um, downer music, like Depeche Mode and the Kieran type, that type of stuff. But Tom Tom Club was like an outlier for me. Like it was, it was like super danceable, super upbeat music with like really interesting sounds. Mister, can you just talk a little bit? To the listeners and just tell them if they haven't listened to Tom Tom Club, what it sounded like. Basically, the Tom Tom Club, if you want to hear the Tom Tom Club sounds, you have to listen to almost every rapper that ever become a millionaire from rap music. Yeah. Every single one of them sample Tom Tom Club song, especially Genius of Love. Mm -hmm. Genius of Love was Mariah Carey's first Grammy. Mariah Carey's first number one hit is the same song that she redid and call it fantasy. So if you really want to, for me to tell someone to about the Tom Tom Club styles and sound, you just have to listen to every single rapper who ever made it. <laughs> I think the funny thing with that though is, you know, you listen to all these people who sampled Tom Tom Club, it's good. But then when you actually listen to Tom Tom Club, it's like, oh, this makes so much more sense. This This is the full picture. When you're hearing all these samples, you know, it's all just been cut up into pieces. Correct. Hearing the full picture is really mind-blowing. The truth is, they are musical geniuses. Um, you know, I, I would listen to their stuff because of their affiliation with Chris Blackwell. Their stuff would be played in Jamaica. You know, so I grew up as a kid, I would hear their stuff playing. Um, I have no, like I said, I had no idea who they were. Even when I was in Bahamas, I ran into them at the, at the studio. I had no clue who they were. I had no clue what they do. You know, all I know is it was just a bunch of musicians making music and having fun and doing everything that adults do that kids wasn't supposed to see. But then I, I start going more in depth into their music and I realized these people are geniuses. You know, they're true artists. You know, our, back in the day, you know, if you think about in Tom Tom Club, in 1982, late 81, 82, 83, when rap music was basically dominating nightclubs in America and all over the world, Tom Tom Club Genius of Love would play every single night in every single club. You know, that's how powerful and how artistic that, that you know, Tom Tom Club work really is. I haven't really thought about this till right this second, but on uh, Talking Heads, um, I think fourth album, Remain in Light, there's a, um, there's a rap breakdown 
which was pretty unusual for a non-rap group to do at the time because it was like 1980. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if Chris and Tina were, you know, if, if that was their concept then considering what they ended up doing with Tom Tom Club. You know, I cannot say for sure. I cannot say for sure. But one thing I know for a fact is Chris and Tina, they're always, always hanging out with these amazing Jamaican musicians. And a lot of people don't realize that hip hop, hip hop was invented by Cool Herc, who is Jamaican. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks don't realize that hip hop was invented by Jamaicans, not by Americans. So it's one, and those are the people that Chris and Tina was always, always hanging out with. Is that the, the basically the Caribbean part of it? So I wouldn't be surprised if the other, if that was their idea to turn that rap section, but I, I cannot say for sure. So when you were a kid, you met them. Do you remember meeting them? Yeah, you know what. I, I totally forgot about them because, like I said, I have no clue who they were and I had no interest in knowing who they were. But as soon as you spot them, the day I walked into their house for the rehearsal and I saw them, instantly I recognized them and I know exactly who they were. You know, so we all start laughing about it and start joking around about it. So, yeah, I mean, I was old enough. I, I was young enough not to care who they were, but I was old enough to record to register their faces in my mind basically when you were um when you were just gravitating towards the studio were you were you trying to you know like get on the instruments or did you want to just party or you just wanted to see what was going on what was sort of your what was the big pull for you here's the thing i never party um like i still at my age i still don't drink i still don't smoke i still never try drugs i still one of those i'm i'm like a freak of nature in the music world because I've done nothing. Yeah, Adam's like that too. Adam's never touched anything. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same. What happened is I was more curious. Think about it as a child coming from this Maroon tribal village in the mountains of Jamaica, where the closest we get to a musical instrument, like for me, I was lucky enough to be around people playing music because I'm a singer. But the average Jamaican kid from those regions never get close and there weren't TV up in that mountain at the time. So they don't even see these instruments. They only hear music on the radio. So when you throw me next to a building like that, where I was told it's a recording studio with all this equipment, that's all I want to hear. I just want to <laughs> be around this, 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 these instruments and all these equipment. I just want to see what it looks like. And when I popped in my head through there the first time and saw all these buttons with all these lights and these faders and... Um, I never forget Stephen Stanley. He was a lot younger at the time. Stephen Stanley, really light-skinned Jamaican guy behind the board. I'm like, oh my God, how, he, how does he even know what to slide or what to touch? He's just so many buttons and stuff around him. And he was the one, he was the, the recording engineer at the time. And just so you know, as a step back, or should say a step ahead, Stephen Stanley, who recorded Tom Tom Club, Genius of Love and all their, those hits. I actually went back to Jamaica a few years ago and brought him in the studio with, with Sly and Robbie. Me, Sly and Robbie, we, are, we produced um, three songs together. 
and also use the same engineer, Steven Stanley, that did Tom Tom Club Records to mix these new three songs that we did. When do we get to hear those? Actually, those are out. Nice. Those are out. Are those on, are those like an EP or those, did you release them as singles? Yeah, they just released them as, um, put them out as single. And, um, you know, as Mystic Bowie's Talking Dread single, one of them is called the Talking Dread, the anthem. It's basically like a chant, Talking Dreads, Talking Dreads, Talking Dreads, Talking Dreads, Talking Dreads, Talking Dreads. Is the anthem, with, you know, obviously there's verses to it. And um, the other song was a song called El Stinko by a, a punk group called Deep Banana Blackout, who, um, you know, they were pretty big uh, in the East Coast at one point. And then uh, there was an, another song, uh, Wordy Rapping Hood, which is a Tom Tom Club song. I redid that one. So it's kind of cool that the engineers that actually recorded Tom Tom Club doing Wordy Rapping Hood is the engineer that I use to mix my version of Wordy Rapping Hood. Yeah, I like your version. Yeah, and the original song is so good too. That's like a, that's like a little bit lesser known Tom Tom Club song, but it's really a jam. Yeah, but you know what? It's a lesser known here. I find like when we used to tour in, in like, in, you go to Europe, even when we went to Japan, people would be singing the words. The audience would be singing the words of Wordy Rapping Hood even more than Genius of Love. Hmm. Wow. So they, they all have their little regions that they're um you know they're peaking. So did you ever get to t- like touch instruments or play instruments? Like would some of the musicians obviously were more welcoming to you than others, I imagine. You know, I did not get to play any of their instruments. No, I did not get to play any of the instruments. There, there was one that, you know, during the Bahamas era was, I was, I didn't even find myself that in, interested in picking up any of their instruments or touching their instruments. My focus was just on the, the, the equipment in the studio. Oh, I see. That I was too fascinated by all those buttons and lights and switches and faders to even think about an instrument. <laughs> <laughs> that was a big deal, man. That was a big deal, you know? But I actually met a pretty cool uh, artist in Jamaica when I was 14 years old. I never forget. I will never forget. And I actually did one of his, one of their songs on, um, on the, talk, uh, the Talking Dreads record. I was 14 years old performing at the hotels. And I never forget these, there's this band hanging out in Jamaica. I think they performed down there. Uh, but one of the members of the band would come and hang out. Uh, he, would, he had an acoustic guitar, so he'd come out to the beach area. I would sit there and play and, you know, smoke his weed and play and have his drink and whatever. This bushy hair guy, all I know is just, just another American with a guitar, and that guitar piqued my interest, and I want to play that guitar. So I'll go every time he come out there, I'll go, you know, if I'm not performing, I would do cabaret and stuff like that. And if I'm not performing, I'd go where he is, and I would sit next to him on the sand. I'd, he'd play the guitar, then he would hand it over to me and have me play and show me some chords. You know, I, I've never had, I had no access to learning guitars. You know, I haven't, I'd never owned an instrument in my life at the time. But he'd show me some chords and uh, I'll never forget when they were leaving the islands. 
he came over and he gave me the guitar. I brought the guitar home with me in St. Elizabeth in the Hills. And over time, the guitar, wear and tear, and a kid who have no, you know, I didn't know how to take care of, you know, instrument as, as well, you know. Um, and he got destroyed in a hurricane, a totally destroyed in a hurricane, which I couldn't even find a string from it. Uh, so later on, I start coming to the United States to perform in Miami. And I saw this guy's picture, the guy who gave me the guitar. I saw his picture and, and this young man's t-shirt. And I stopped the guy, I'm like, who is this guy? I know this guy. And the guy was like, no, you couldn't know this guy. This guy is Jerry Garcia. He's from, the band is called Grateful Dead. And I'm like, I have no clue who Jerry Garcia is. I have no clue who Grateful Dead is. I'm like, you don't understand. I met the guy, he was in Jamaica and I, he, he, he left a guitar with me. He was down there playing, blah, blah, blah. Then I told the guy when he, when he was in Jamaica and he went and did the research, he's like, holy crap. Yo, Grateful Dead was in Jamaica playing at that time, for real. I'm like, I, I don't care who, what the name is. I'm telling you that I know that guy. I met him. <laughs> real surreal moments, man. Then I, that's when I realized, wait, this guy is, he's, he's important, he's famous. And then I start talking to other people, other musicians in Miami about, you know, about this guy. And then I know his name. And as soon as I say Jerry Garcia, everybody lit. I'm like, oh my God, is this for real? And then that's when I realized, man, I was, I was hanging with royalty. <laughs> it was like the hip studio. I mean, yeah, everyone was going to that studio. Yeah, man. Oh my God. It was, it was pretty cool. It was pretty, I had a pretty cool life, you know, rough, but cool at the same time. <laughs> I get the impression from like some like when I when I've heard these stories from you that like Keith Emerson was like the mo maybe the most or one of the most like kind of welcoming or or you know inviting for you to like kind of hang out. Is that do you feel like that's true? Yes, one hundred percent. Because he's one of he's a guy. He's just a really nice guy with his British accent and he's have his motorcycle. I, I'm a kid, so I see a motorcycle. I'm gonna be curious. I want to be on a motorcycle. And he'd never turn me away. Even if he's busy talking with his friends or whatever, he would literally put me on the back of the motorcycle and like ride me around a little bit, even for 20 minutes and drop me back off. Then I was happy. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So at least he knew how to deal with a teenager. He knew that if he just give me a ride on a motorcycle for half an hour, drop me back off, I will leave him alone for the rest of the night. <laughs> That's funny. They're all so used to being people like catering to them, but you're just like a, a, a teenager bugging them to ride their motorcycles and stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a different culture. It's a very different culture too, because like here, even um, it doesn't matter how famous you are here in the States, you're not going to get catered to in Jamaica as much. I'm not saying that you won't be get catered to, but the culture is a lot different. Um, you're going to be treated like, for the most part, like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I actually love that. Yeah. You know, because I, I've spoken to quite a few famous folks from here who came to Jamaica and would said, oh, my God, this is the first time I feel like a normal person. Because nobody asking them for, for autographs, nobody bothering them for pictures. Nobody's just like, 
Yeah, you want to come up here? You want to? There are people trying to sell them stuff just like they're selling every other tourist. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah man. So it was, like I said, there's tough moments through my life. But every time I look back, I just remind myself that if I complain, I would be one ungrateful man. I want to hear a little bit about um, Aaron's trip to Jamaica. Aaron's trip to Jamaica. I personally think Aaron should be telling you about his trip to Jamaica. <laughs> and I tell you what, I remember when I spoke to Aaron about Jamaica and I explained, you know, he started asking me a lot of questions. And I said to Aaron, I remember telling Aaron the story about how I start um, having my, the guy who, the couple that runs my charity, the Mystic Bowie Cultural Center. I remember telling Aaron at our first conversation about Jamaica, about how my, conversa- my first conversation, conversation with these, this couple. Because when they approached me and said, this couple approached me and said that they'd like to donate to my charity. And I said, do yourself a favor, don't donate to something that you don't know about. How about you take a trip with me to Jamaica, come meet the kids that I work with, come see what I do. Then you can donate if you still feel, feel that way. And I remember telling Aaron this. So I, I basically, that was my way of telling Aaron, listen, instead of me answering questions, your questions about Jamaica and the Maroons, you need to come to meet the Maroon people. And that's what he did. So I think Aaron should be telling the story about Jamaica. I'll tell my experience, but before I tell my experience, could you tell people like wh- who the Maroons are? I think that's something that is a, is a starting point that people aren't even, most people aren't even familiar with. Okay, I was born into a tribe called the Maroons. The Maroons were the first, first independent black nation in the Western hemisphere. And I said, first, yes. I know when you study American history, you have this edited version that Haiti is the first free black nation in the Western hemisphere. That is not true. The Maroons, after gaining their independence from Great Britain, the Jamaica Maroons, they taught bookmen, trained bookmen, send bookmen to Haiti to start that revolution. So get that straight out. Haiti was not the first independent black nation in the Western world. The Jamaica Maroons were. What happened is Jamaica Maroons were brought to Jamaica and throughout the Caribbean from West Africa. Benin, Sierra Leone, Guinea, Ghana, that region, by Spain. That's way before the British got know anything about getting involved in the Caribbean. It was by Spain after the so-called discovery of Columbus. Maroons were brought there by Spain. In, in 1655, the British invaded. And let me step back. When they got to Jamaica with the first set of slaves, most of them ran away to the mountains instantly. They bolted. Mm-hmm. They didn't know how to control them. So these people and in Jamaica, if, if you Google or, Google or Wikipedia, Jamaica Maroons, one of the term, terms that's going to come up is runaway slaves. Because that's what happened. Most of the slaves ran away right off the bat. Then some... They recaptured some and some were slaves, enslaved. But in 1655, when the British invaded Jamaica to take it away from Spain, some of the Maroons, the slaves that were there, fought, took sides 
with the Spaniards because they believe that the Spaniards are going to protect them from these invaders. And some fought with the British because the British made a promise that you will never be enslaved anymore if you take our side. However, the British won. The British won. And the majority of those slaves were run away to the mountain with, with the other free slaves that were there from the beginning and started a revolution where the, the British made, a, um, made an agreement that they will be bringing in new slaves, but they will not ill-treat them. The British went back on that promise and start in the, the, based on the, the, the evidence that the Maroons would leave the mountains where they, they um, had colonized, which is today called the cockpit country. They went down and check on those slaves, realized the British were, were ill-treating those slaves. So they started a revolution against the British. They were killing so many British soldiers per day, King George III could not afford to lose anymore. They actually, the British actually thought that these, these um, slave uh, drivers were actually taking jobs in other islands and disappearing, taking boats to other islands, not realizing they were being killed until the, the Maroons start showing up with their heads and be like, no, they're not hiding. They're not running away. Here are their heads. We're killing them. So King George III could not afford to lose anybody else. So they sent two lawyers on January 6, 1738. January 6, 1738. King George sent his lawyers to a kampong to sit with the tribal leaders with the treaty. Leave us alone. We, your land, this whole region, which is 2,500 acres, can never be taxed, can never be taken, can never be sold. It's for the born and the unborn Maroons. This land belongs to you. The rest of Jamaica belongs to the British. And that was the treaty. Um, that's the tribe I was born in. Uh, so for 11 years, for 11 years, I was the Minister of Youth and Culture for the Akampong Maroons. My community is called Akampong in the peak of the cockpit country. And so that's where I still call home. I cherish it, I love it. And so yes, we, the, my tribal leaders trained bookman, sent him to Haiti to start a revolution. And I repeat that, I've repeated that for a reason, multiple reasons. <laughs> so that's where I brought Aaron and his queen. And I made sure I did not want to be, them to come to Jamaica and just be a tourist. I want them to come to Jamaica and be a Maroon for that period of time. Be a Jamaican for that period of time. So they, they ate traditional, traditional food. They drink the coconut water. They, you name it. They were doing everything that the Maroons were doing for that period of time. And Aaron, I have to say, you and your queen, I have a lot of respect and love for you guys from that moment, man. Oh, it was one of the best, best experiences of my life. What we experience is the, the Maroon Festival, which um, celebrates this independence. And it's been going on for hundreds of years. And it's, it's, and it's evolved over the years. I mean, it's, now it's more of a big thing um, and, and it brings tourists. But as I understand it, it, most of the tourists that come to this festival are from the Caribbean, right? Most of them, yes, are from the Caribbean. But you, you, as you saw, Aaron, there's a lot of um, Europeans there and um, people from other countries. And they, 
those people are usually folks who are doing social studies or tribal studies, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Those are usually the tourists that we get up there from other countries for the most part. So, yeah, it was an interesting experience. We came in, at, you know, obviously you, you there's only two ways into Jamaica. When you're flying in, you have to stay at one of the main main towns. Um, I'm blanking. What is the name? It wasn't Kingston. It was... We landed in Montego Bay. Mon- yeah, Montego Bay. So, yeah. Okay, so we get in Montego Bay, Amy and I, and uh, it's it's where tourists go. So everybody, like like you were saying earlier, when walking down the street just going to pick up something to eat everybody's trying to trying to get me to buy stuff or trying to get me to get a taxi or whatever it's that it has that energy it has a tourist energy to it when we get up to a kampong totally different N- nobody's trying to sell me anything it's just that people are living people are wanting to talk about being maroon and and the maroon history it's that, that i thought that part i found really fascinating everyone there knows this history the history that you just told me they know it backwards and forwards. They're extremely proud of it. And they want anyone visiting the town to know about it. Everyone is extremely friendly. It just felt more like it didn't feel like you were on vacation. It felt like you were visiting somewhere, you know? We were there for a few days before the festival started. So we kind of got to experience the town when there wasn't a lot of people there and then kind of see the people. We saw the festival start to get built up with all the vendors coming in and the, the the people who are gonna you know cook food and stuff. And then we saw the whole rush of people come and then the people leave and kind of saw the aftermath of that. And we stayed at a friend's house and they cooked for us and, and they gave us a place to stay. And it was, um, food was fantastic. Every meal that she made was just like, <laughs> so good, so fresh, like, I'd never had a fish that delicious before. I'd never had bananas and plantains that good before in my life. The dumplings, she made us um, fried dumplings and boiled dumplings. Those were both two highlights for me. Nice. Yeah, the, usually the fried dumplings is, a, is like a breakfast or brunch. Yeah. The boiled dumplings come with dinner. Yeah. So amazing. Amy uh, does not like seafood, but she totally ate the seafood there, the fish there, because it was really delicious. Yeah, I mean, a lot of folks don't realize um, that even that, you know, Jamaica is famous for his jerk, jerk spice. All that stuff was invented by the Maroons. It's all from that mountain. So when you came up there, you weren't eating the tourist version of jerk chicken or the tourist version of, of steamed fish. You were eating the original version. And if you can remember, most of the most of the, the, the food that you ate from there, except for the fish, even the chicken was like running around it. The, the, the food, the, the food, the potato, everything was farmed right there in that tribal community. Once the festival's going and you have like a lot of a lot of guys up there that are selling jerk chicken or jerk um, jerk pork and stuff like that. A lot of them have like a the pig's head that are like kind of there is like the front of the vendor. And a lot of them put like a little cigarette hanging out of its mouth or little sunglasses on there. It's very funny. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty funny because here what happened. And people, you know, one would look from another culture. One might look at it like, whoa, um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> that pig, that's, that's, that pig's head that's wearing those sunglasses and a spliff in his mouth. That's the pig that is on that jerk pan right now that we're going to eat. Yeah. Well, at least think about it. At least you know what you're eating. 
at least you know exactly what you're eating. Every guy you talk to who, who's got some some chicken or pork, he's got the best. And don't even go to that other one, the two two down. You know that guy <laughs> doesn't know how to do it. I got the best. <laughs> That's amazing. What's the, what's the setting like for the for the festival? So it's a pretty. It's a small town, and there's a couple roads, and so the roads. Um, once it gets set up, it's like they the they take like bamboo frame and they make these like little partition like um, vendors. And so each one is whatever it is, you know, they might be selling stuff or it might be food, uh, art, whatever it is. And so it's just it's just back to back to back to back, all these different little like pop up shops, essentially. Some of them, there's a few buildings that already exist there. So some of them are, are, are they kind of turn into bars or whatever, and they set up the uh, like the gigantic system, the gigantic speakers, kind of like used to happen back in the day with Jamaica with the sound systems on every corner, or you know, to where they're just blasting music outward, and there's just multiple speakers blaring music, different music, and so you like sometimes you're walking around and you hear like one song in your left ear and one song in your right ear because the speakers are just doing that. And another song in the back of your head. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really, really loud. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> it's cool. It's like um, your friend, um, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, um, Narada? Yeah, Neri. Is that his name? Neri. Neri. Yeah, Neri. Neri. Okay, so. His name is Narada, but we call him Neri. So Neri, I met Neri that, that at that festival. He's Jamaican, but he'd never been to the Maroon Festival before. Correct. And he was just blown away by it because, and he was telling me like that it was like a version of what you know what Jamaica used to be like before it became overrun by tourism, and so it was like a slice of old school Jamaica. Yeah, and that's that's one of the reasons why I can never leave that mountain. I I I really appreciate it every single day. I love it, and because it's this, we still maintain. We still happen through all the gentrification, all the changes that Jamaica has been going through. That community is still um, able to maintain its legitimacy and its culture and its heritage. You know, so it's like the fact that you 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 came there and you saw that. I'm very happy for you, um, because it's not many, not many tourists. And a matter of fact, there's a lot of Jamaicans who can never say that they've been to a kampong, to the tribal territory. As you saw, Neri, that was his first time um, being uh, attending one of the our, our celebration, or that was our independence, January 6th, every year. You know, I'm I'm really super psyched and super happy that I had the, the opportunity to give you that piece of my history that piece of my heritage my culture you know full yeah. blast in, in, as opposed to folks who will visit me in a kampong in my tribal village i have a lot of people visit me there throughout the year however they haven't gotten what you've got and there was what like what, how many people eight ten thousand people show up yeah it got, we basically living in the community full-time it's like about 600 people yeah. And then it goes to about over 10,000 just for that celebration. Wow. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's just people just, you know, crammed in, music everywhere, especially and as it gets darker, you know, there's more people and and more music and it's um it's just like a just a lively environment. So there's that there's that sort of the festival part of it, but there's also sort of like the ceremonial ceremony. There's a ceremonial element to it. Correct. And uh, that is 
um, I got to see like the part of the ceremony that people see. And then I also got to see a part that isn't really seen also for some reason. I, I'll, I'll talk about this part. So, okay. So the night before, so in the fifth, it's the partying kind of starts begin begins on the fifth, right? So right. people are out, music is playing. Basically, the party starts on the first, but yeah. it's it's small, it's just building up. Yeah. So on the fifth, we're staying, we're the house we're staying at is just, you know, really close to where everything's happening. And the music's so loud, the bass is so loud. Um, you can't really sleep the night before, even if you're trying to sleep. <laughs> and so there's a there's a ceremony in the morning where um, they take um, the elders or the uh, people of the village have 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 cut up uh, a pig for everyone to eat a piece of. Correct. So Mystic had told me that um, that that this happens in the middle of the night or something like that, and I I thought it was like a thing you that people went to. I mean, I couldn't sleep, and we're like, let's go to that thing. It's like three in the morning. I don't know, four in the morning, <laughs> and so and we go walk over to it, and there's like four guys that are cutting up this pig for tomorrow for the next day's ceremony. And it's just them. There's no people, there's no visitors. Because visitors are, are not allowed at that at yeah. time. Yeah. And I, I met, I had met a couple of them already and they knew that I was with you. Correct. And I kind of, and I was like, Hey, how you doing? And they're like, yeah, they just like basically invited us to sit next to them and kind of hang out with them while they were doing this. Yeah. Because you're not a tourist. You're, you're, you're there with me. So you're no family. And so that was like probably of the of all the things that I experienced during that, that was probably the thing that was like the most special to me that I got to experience this moment that wasn't even open to tourists where we just kind of sat there quietly and just, you know, hung out with these guys while they went through the ceremony of, of cutting up this pig in the middle of the night, preparing for the next day. It was like this cold, you know, night, night. It was dark out. It was like barely lit by a fire. Um, they were telling stories and stuff as it as it as it was happening. It was just it was just an amazing moment. Yeah, because that tree that you um that they you saw them have the fire where they cook that pig and do all this you know, the ceremonial stuff. That tree that's called a kinda tree. The reason why it's called a kinda tree. Um, the definition of kinda means one family. You know, kindred spirit to be kindred means to be one, become one. Uh, so we call it the kinda tree, and the reason why that's where before um. Before there were the Maroons, there were five different tribes in Jamaica. There were five different tribes that, that the Spaniard had brought um, slaves from, from West Africa, from five different tribes. They brought them there, but individual tribes could not have beaten the British. So the, the, all five tribal elders got together under that tree. And those rocks that you saw those elders sat on, those rocks have been there for over 300 years. Those were their chairs. That was like Congress. So those rocks is there are where the, the tribal leaders would sit. And they literally took uh, an object and cut their, each one of them would cut their hand. So a tiny little cut in, their, in the palm of their hand, drip the blood into a kalbash, which is a gourd. And they pour some rum in it to kill whatever bacteria rum that they make. And then they all drink from it. And that's how they became one kinder, one family. And that's how they beat the British. So because individually, each tribe going at the British could not beat them. So they got together and that's how they beat the British. That's amazing. Now, I might not remember all this correctly because it's been a, a few years. But so after after everyone eats the little a hunk of the um, 
pig and it's unseasoned. I think that's part of it. Correct. It cannot have any any additives to it. There's like a dance and then kind of a, they kind of like march to through the city and stuff. Yeah, before they go to the, this before they actually go to the city, after the um before anybody can taste that pig, the 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 the, the, the tribal chief, the late chief, his name is Kojo, King Kojo. They the the elders would take some of the pig, some of the, the cooked pork, and they had to march miles down in the, one of the valley. Oh, yeah. And to go put some of that, um, we call it feeding the ghost, they'd put some of that pork on his grave. And then they'd march all the way back up to, to, to that site where you went to under the kinder tree. And that's when you see everybody rushing to grab a piece of the pork because they dice it in small pieces. The idea uh, and the belief system is you eat a piece of that pork and that gives you good luck and blessings for the rest of the year. Yeah. And the truth is that's the only time of year that I eat pork. I don't eat pork product except for that one time of year is when I eat pork every single year. I take a, I have to get a piece of that. And from that, after that, you, you, you know, I, I mean, people from all over the world rushing down fighting just to get their hand a piece of that as you saw Aaron. Yeah, yeah. After that is over, then the the you know the 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 dancers, the elders, the dancers, the drummers, everybody goes into like a trance and they just now start marching and chanting all the traditional songs and dance through the entire community. And then back up to what we call parade grounds, which is the school played field. And which they have a tent set up, and that's where like prime ministers and presidents and from different countries, and that's where they sit. And you know, that's where they, you, that's where they, they've been introduced. You know, um, leaders from all over the world, and you know, if there's not a president, there's a representation for the president is there. If there's not a prime minister there, there's a representation for the prime minister there from different countries, and they're all there to. Um, you know, being introduced and meet and greet. And it's almost like parliament, world parliament right there on the little parade ground. And that's, then the, that, that ends the, we call the ceremonial part of things. And that's when the party kicks in where all the big sound system crank up to their maximum volume. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the thing I like, or the thing that's I think really cool about the the ceremony is that the, there's all kinds of significance and meaning behind everything that's happening, but it all points back to kicking the British's ass. Correct. Like, and I think that's awesome. Like, like there's some some people at the front that are like wrapped in vine, right? And that that symbolizes how the Maroons were able to utilize the environment and um, sneak up on the British, basically. Correct, that was, the, that was our ambush. Uh, yeah, yeah, as you saw, like a lot of the, the dancers, um, they, yeah, they wrap themselves in that cocoon vine. Cocoon is a type of whisk vine. As they wrap themselves in that, the significance of it, like you said, that was their camouflage back in the day to blend into the jungle. So when the British would come up, the British soldiers would come up hunting uh, for these people, these people dress themselves up, wrap themselves up and stand next to a tree. So then now they look like just another tree trunk wrapped with, wrapped with vines. So the British would come up with their musket, boom, they chop a head off and then they'll just, then they get another weapon for the, to, for the tribe. So that's how they beat the British. And I, I never forget, you know, one, one year, one January 6th on that same celebration, 
when the British High Commissioner took the stage to speak and he said, you know, the British would never admit that they were beat by a bunch of runaway slaves. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that just basically boosts the pride of the Maroons even more by him saying that. It's weird because like I, when we were there, there was like a couple, there was a couple film crews, uh, people, I don't know what they were doing or what they were filming, but there was two guys, I feel like almost positive they were British and they were at a British film crew. So some documentary and um, they were being a little bit invasive and obnoxious. I remember the night before they were like told to stop for a while. Yeah, the, they had the drones. evening dance thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they were just kind of uh, being a little tacky. But I remember thinking that it was odd that these British guys were filming a documentary, probably for British TV, and that the, all the ceremony was about how they were beat, that they lost, that you guys were celebrating kicking their ass. <laughs> and that just seemed like a strange irony to me. You know, you can only hide the truth for so long, man. <laughs> <laughs> the truth have a way of surfacing, showing its beautiful face, you know, every so often. So a lot of people, you know, we came there a few days earlier, but, you know, most people didn't show up until the night before. So it's just like this mad rush of people showing up and then they kind of just take off um, by the, the 7th, by the morning of the 7th, like almost everyone's gone by then. Correct. It's so fast. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, everybody heading to wherever you know they go to sell their product again you know yeah and the people it's just the people that are visiting you know most of them are gone correct and and to what you were saying earlier like you're saying a lot a lot of people you know even jamaicans haven't been up there so where it is is like if you're at montego bay it's like um a two hour i want to say like it's a two hour car drive up into the mountains yeah it's two hours um driving normally usually you know i would say two and a half hours yeah. And it's, you know, it's mountain roads. Very mountain, very windy, most of it unpaved. Yeah. The okay, who's uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting the name. The the family we stayed with, the 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 guy who was the driver. Troy. Troy, yes. Yeah, Troy. Troy and his wife is Winsome. Yes, Winsome, yes. yes. Very nice people. Amazing um, people. As a matter of fact, I was on the phone with them today like three times throughout today. I I, I speak to them every day. <laughs> Yeah, they're they're wonderful people, and they Winsome was made amazing food for us, and she was just very accommodating um, to whatever whatever we needed. And then so Troy Troy took us back to Montego Bay. He uh, we had a different friend who drove us up there, but Troy was not only was he fantastic at driving these crazy roads, I was really fascinated with his system, and I'm, maybe it's a system in Jamaica the way that the horn was used. The horn had like two functions. The horn was either beep, beep, I'm coming around the corner or beep, beep, hey, how you doing? Correct. Person that I know on the road. <laughs> Correct. The horn is used for <laughs> and two, it was like, two reasons. Yes. Yeah. And everybody knew it. Everybody was so in tune and it was it worked so perfectly. There was no issues on the road. Everybody was like. It's a dance. Driving on the road, it's a dance that you just have to know the rhythm. And the horn was the music. Yeah. And I was just, I would be so uncomfortable trying to drive that road. But yeah, they, Troy was so relaxed and so good at it. It was just like, I just felt just captivated watching him do it, watching him drive. I mean, you, when you grow up 
driving those roads, you learn the rules, just like anywhere else. You learn the road pattern. Like, like here in the States, when somebody beep at you, you know that they're mad at you. <laughs> yeah, I know. I guess that's, <laughs> that's how it's used here. I, I, I learned the hard way because when I just start coming driving in the United States, I would beep just to, if I'm passing somebody, if I'm going to overtake in Jamaica, you beep and the person basically telling the person your intention. And that person would either tell you to hold, wait by waving his hand out and just like telling you to wait. Maybe there's some, there's objects up ahead or a, or a corner, or it will be like, beep back at you, beep, beep, to say, okay, go ahead. You should, it's clear to go. I was doing that when I just started driving in the States. I would beep to ask permission or to let folks know I'm going around and I will get people flipping me off. <laughs> <laughs> So it's a, it's a cultural thing, you know, there you learn to drive there ever since you're a kid. You know, you just you just know how it works. And that's that's Troy. So I want to ask you, I mean, uh, when, when I was there, I, I remember having a real brief conversation. We didn't really ex um, expand on this much, but I think you told me something that the people from these parts of the um, Jamaica played a significant role in the development of ska music. Correct. In, in, in the in the 50s and all that. I would love to hear more about that. I mean, if. Mento, Mayal, was the first music. That's Maroon traditional music. Mm -hmm. And then Mento derived from Mayal. So they're both traditional Maroon music. Ska came from Mento. Ska came from Mento. Basically, Mento, Ska, ska is basically Mento with more instrument, instruments, basically. Because Mento used to be played with like homemade banjo. A rumba box. Uh, rumba box is basically um, a giant kalimba that you sit on. And, you know, you have those things that come up that you used to play the bass. And hand drums. And that's what mento is. And that's where ska came from. So a lot, a lot of the, the, the older ska musicians, well, a lot of people don't realize, they are from the Maroon tribes. It's just that they weren't born up there. Their parents, like, left the tribe to live in a, like Kingston and places like that where there's more work, chance of um, employment. You know, so some of these people would be born in that. They're like Freddie McGregor, who's amazing at Scott. Freddie McGregor is a Maroon, but he was born in Clarendon. You know I mean? Because his parents and grandparents had back then had moved to those regions, they had more employment. You know, so yeah, yes, the ska came from Mento, which is the traditional Maroon um, music. Now, I always think of, you know, how I always think of it, or it's kind of generally described, you know, ska is a sort of mento with um, American R&B and jazz were kind of the main, those are like the three main ingredients. How, how exactly. do you feel about that? Yeah. Okay. You agree with that? I agree with it. And I, I tell you what, what, what was happening in when Jamaica got, got its um, so-called independence in 62, what was happening is like they had the, the, the U US government start bringing, um, giving permission for Jamaican, Jamaicans to go work on the farms, cutting sugarcane, picking apples, peaches, whatever, here in the States, I mean, in the South for the most part, like um, Louisiana, Texas, Alabama, those regions, and Florida. What, would what used to happen back then is those farm workers would bring back to Jamaica the music records that they were buying there that we, we didn't have access to in Jamaica. So they would bring that music back. So that country music, that R&B, that jazz, and that old 60s pop 
those people all take pieces from that and incorporate it into mental and that's what ska is and that's why you hear a lot of old ska is like uh covers and and renditions of other songs because it's that's where it came from that's a big part of influence correct that's why and it's a tradition in ska and i think that's like you know going back to talking dreads you're what you're doing is in the tradition of jamaican music uh from the old from the early days of ska is that you take other music and you 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 make it as a rendition of you know ska and reggae exactly and that's the reason why like i said i wanted was to go back to jamaica to record it there with those same jamaican musicians to legitimize the thing i think it's the fact that it's talking heads is i think maybe the thing that turns you know kind of catches your attention it's not the kind of music that people typically associate with being turned into reggae music but but it's being you do it the same way that it would be done if it was you know r b songs or whatever you know the scottalites would do you know different popular songs and just turn it into you know make it into the ska beat it's the same thing really 100 percent the same thing all i did was exactly what those um those elders did basically carry on the tradition the, the tradition for them i think like so you know the first time i saw you play and, and, and talking to other people that had seen you play you know, that's what you really notice about your music is that it's just really authentic, really authentic, like music, both in terms of it being the, the reggae and ska music, but also in terms of your love for the original source material. Thank you. I'm glad I'm glad you saw that. That's what's like beautiful about Talking Dreads. And like we're, we're, we're in this country, we're so used to people doing gimmicks that are not authentic that you hear you hear the description of what it is and that's what you assume it is it's a, it's an in, non-authentic gimmick you know like there's so many bands that do things like um i always think of the band even though i like i like i like it it's funny is a max sabbath they do mcdonald's themed yeah. black sabbath songs it's silly it's meant to be silly and like kind of a a gimmick yeah but i think most of those guys meant meant to be that way though i appreciate it it's funny it's clever, but that's what it is. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the main reasons uh, to keep the thing real, to keep it real, is one of the main reasons why I reached out um, at the time before I even recorded these songs. I made sure I reached out to Mike Asia, who was managing, like I said, Toots Animators and a lot of those guys. You know, because I wanted... I wanted input from these elders. I wanted to basically step back and do what these elders have been doing with this music. I didn't want it to be a gimmick. I wanted it to be real. I wanted it was to basically represent them. And that's why I invited so many of them on the record. You know, I have Freddie McGregor who sang a song, sang with me on a song on this record. Um, then I have one of the more modern artists, uh, Taros Riley, on a song. Then I reach out to Cindy Wilson from the B-52s who were really close. They're still very close with Talking Heads, still very, very close. They're best friends. Talking Heads used to open for um, B-52s. Um, so I asked Cindy if she would mind singing a song. And she did that song, Heaven With Me, um, on the record. So basically what I wanted to do was tie exactly what, you know, tie over the, the Jamaicans with the Americans, bring them together, 
exactly like the Jamaicans used to do by taking the records from here, take it to Jamaica, fuse it with the mentor and do their scat. I want us to do the same thing. And I feel like I accomplished that. And the fact that you said um, you complimented that, I really am very honored. Thank you. You know, I've gotten to see you a few times and I also feel like you're such a great showman. I feel like you have that skill um, that you're able to just win over an audience, even if I don't even know, I bet you in an audience that doesn't even really care for reggae or whatever, you kind of have the charisma to win them over. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your approach to performing live. I like the fact that you say that. I appreciate that. Um, but quite, I've heard that quite a few times where people would come to me after a performance and would say, verbatim, you know, Mystic Bowie, I've never listened to reggae. I'm not a reggae fan, but you just won me over. I love your music. So I, re I really appreciate the fact that you, you, you said this. Um, and my thing is, I am not, when I'm on stage and I have a feeling it's brought over from my tribal background, I allow myself to be taken, transported by the music. So when I'm up there, I'm not performing for you and I'm not performing for me. I'm literally, I have, if you tell me what I've done in the middle of a performance, I might tell you you're lying until you show me a video. I have no clue what I do when I'm on stage. <laughs> I have no clue. So I am not performing. I have, I'm not trying to win over or lose. I'm literally there. I let my, the music takes me with the hope that I get my reflection, that you look at me as a mirror and whatever I'm feeling, you can tap into that force and just take it and run with it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the last time I saw you was at that um, winery in Lodi. And that's like an audience that you don't necessarily picture when you think of like who would be going to a reggae show. It's like like kind of a upper middle class, well, uh, middle aged people, but they, they're totally into you, totally, totally taken with you and totally taken with your music. And it's like fascinating. It was fascinating to watch. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, you know, the first time I, I, I played there three times, I did that, that winery and um, the Michael David winery. What happened is I played the first time. I don't think they knew what to expect, but somebody um, that works there is a fan of Talking Dreads and suggested I, I, I perform there. I performed and then the owner came up after the show like, please, you have to, you have to make way for me for next year. We want you back. That's when I found out that my friend who works there, the fan who worked there, emailed me and told me that the, 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 their fans, their, um, their clientele, were the one emailing them while I'm performing, were sending these messages to let them know they better have me back next year. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty cool that, you know, like you said, you walked in and you see these folks and, you know, they're dressed to the nine and they're in the most fancy dress with their most fancy, expensive wine glasses in front of them. And they're doing their thing. And then you kick off and you, I let myself be vulnerable enough for the music to take me. So when I opened my eye after like the third song, I saw hundreds of people in front of me jumping and in a rage, like just like totally tap into the energy that I was feeling. And 
I felt the same way you felt. Like, whoa, we did it. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was, uh, just a little funny side story is, uh, so Neri, the, the friend we were talking about earlier, the one who had been to Maroon, the Maroon Festival that first time, same as me. Mm -hmm. He played in your band, right? I can't remember. What, what instrument did he play? No, he he's a, he sings. Okay, he also. Oh yeah. Oh, he, he sings. Yeah. Yeah. He he actually op um tours with Freddie McGregor and uh, as an opening act. So he whenever Freddie's not on tour, then he would come and sing back up with me and open for me also. So he was there and he saw me. He's like, oh, you know, he he immediately like recognized me and was just like, oh, how you doing? How's the lady? You're <laughs> <laughs> talking about my wife. <laughs> He's actually coming to the States. Uh, he's flying up the 22nd of this month. I think the 24th, he have a, a show in in Brooklyn, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he's performing for the, um, the, the, the community that he's from in Jamaica. Um, they have the folks from that community get to that bunch of them get together in New York once a year and just have this amazing party so they hire him to come up they're flying him up from jamaica to come perform that and then he's performing a jamaica independent celebration in i think uh, iowa or something like that so he have quite a few shows of his own which i'm i'm very happy to see him shine you know because he, he's such an amazing artist he's an amazing singer so yeah. to see him shine and watch him now stepping out to do his own thing makes me very proud i feel like a the uncle watching, you know, his nephew going out and just feeling proud, watching him, you know, blossom and branch out on his own. My main observation, I mean, just being that, you know, the way that ska came about, you know, coming from Mento, I, I feel like, I mean, it, it's a like of all the genres out there, I feel like it's one that continues to metamorphosize and, you know, different people pick it up and do different things with it. I agree. I, I totally agree, because if you think worldwide, there's ska bands worldwide doing their own little rendition of ska. Yeah. And they just take every every conceivable influence and they mix it with ska and make something totally different. Correct. Yeah, okay, you listen to a lot of those Cali, California bands. They all have that, they, they all have the, you know, they have the Cali, for me, it's like a Cali style ska. And then you go to the UK, you have a, UK type ska. It's, it's, it's amazing, man. I mean, you're right. The, the ska is basically taking on a life of its own in each uh, area that you dump it. Yeah, like I don't know that I've seen other genres go gonna get that quite that flexible where you have bands take like really extreme music like metal or hardcore punk and mix it with it or they take soul music they take rap music. They take all these things that are so different from one another, but they still like mix it with ska and they still make it like a subgenre of ska. Correct. Correct. It's so interesting. You don't really see that as so much in other genres. I have a feeling the reason why it's like that though is because ska did not just come from one place. You know what I mean? So it's easy for everybody to tap into. Okay, if you think about it, like I said, we're talking about country music, old pop, old jazz, old R&B, all this music, this is basically American music we're talking about from right across the United States, not just one area. So now you take this music and you mix it with the mental. So everybody 
have a little thing, a part of them in this in this music, without even realizing it. It's already starting out as as a, having all these components just to begin with. Exactly, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's the components already there. It's just you know, folks to identify the component that is that you know that is from their uh, their region per se. And once you once you you sense tap into that that little thing, whatever that little pitch piece is, you're never gonna get, you, you can never get rid of it. And that's gonna be your introduction to ska and you will stay with it. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaroncarns.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Ska podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you would like to order my book, In Defense of Ska, you can go to Amazon, request it at your favorite indie bookstore or library, or go to clashbooks.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying, Ska now more than ever. Thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.